0: Our first scripture reading this morning comes from the book of Exodus, chapter 17, verses 1 through 7. Let us listen now for the word of the Lord. From the wilderness of sin, the whole congregation of the Israelites journeyed by stages as the Lord commanded. They camped at Rephidim, but there was no water for the people to drink. The people quarreled with Moses and said, give us water to drink. And Moses said to them, Why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? But the people thirsted there for water, and the people complained against Moses, Why did you bring us out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? So Moses cried out to the Lord, What shall I do with this people? They are almost ready to stone me. And the Lord said to Moses, Go on ahead of the people and take some of the elders of Israel with you. Take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile and go. I will be standing there in front of you on the rock at Horeb. Strike the rock and water will come out of it so that the people may drink. Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel. He called the place Massa and Meribah because the Israelites quarreled and tested the Lord, saying, Is the Lord among us or not? Our second reading comes from the book of Philippians, chapter 2, verses 1 through 13. Let us listen again for God's word. If then there is any encouragement in Christ, any consolation from love, any sharing in the Spirit, any compassion and sympathy, make my joy complete. Be of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility. and on earth, and under the earth. And every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Therefore, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed me, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who is at work in you enabling you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. This is the word of the Lord. You know, the more things change, the more they stay the same. Right? Once again, continuing along this narrative of the Exodus, we see, yet again, the Israelites are complaining. This time because they have no water. And once again... God miraculously provides for them. Now, while upon first reading, this text probably sounds very, very similar to what we read last week when the Israelites were complaining about being hungry, and God provided for them manna and quail. But the situation here has actually escalated a little bit. You may have noticed that instead of just grumbling and complaining like they were doing last week, now the people are quarreling with Moses. And Moses fears they may even try to stone him. So, interestingly, the, the Hebrew word that's used here for quarrel is very often used in legal disputes. It's, it's a legal term. So, in other words, the people who are now afraid of death by dehydration, in a certain sense, are putting Moses and God even on trial. And they're driving question, their accusation even. Is one that seems almost unthinkable given all that they've been through. They ask, Is the Lord among us or not? It seems impossible that after all this, after witnessing the power of God over Pharaoh in Egypt, after being miraculously led through the waters of the sea, after being fed with bread from heaven in the wilderness, you'd think that this question would have been sufficiently answered by now. That yes, indeed, the Lord is with us. Yet, even with everything they've been through, and everything God has done for them, and done in their midst, they still question the presence of God with them. Now once again, like last week, it's important for us to recognize ourselves in this story. That we are just like those Israelites. That it's not simply those people that did this and that asked those questions. This is our story. This is who we are. Constantly putting God on trial and asking, is the Lord among us or not? Even after all we've been through, and after everything God has done in our midst. In fact, we have many churches across the country right now, and even a couple in our own presbytery, that... I think, are asking this question. Is the Lord among us or not? Asking this question of our denomination. And sadly, many of them believe that that answer is no. That the Lord is not among us because of some of the decisions that we've made recently as a denomination. Many worry that we're going against the word of God or that we're doing things contrary to God's will. At our next presbytery meeting in uh, about a week or so, will be voting, in fact, to dismiss a congregation from our denomination to another Presbyterian denomination because they feel they can no longer be a part of this denomination because of how the church has changed and how they believe it will continue to change. And I'm not trying to assign any blame or judgment or say anything negative about those who have made that difficult and complicated decision to leave. I simply bring this up to say that this question is the Lord among us or not, is still very much a live question. It's a question that haunts even our church, continues to be asked over and over by God's people. It's also, to a certain extent, I think, the question that Paul is seeking to answer when he writes his letter to the church in Philippi. Now, we don't know a whole lot about the situation in Philippi, except that as with many of Paul's writings, it, the letter seems to have been precipitated by some kind of conflict or discord among the people. You know, this church that Paul uh, helped plant, helped build, um, now he's, he's, it seems like he's in prison and he's writing them this letter to, to um, primarily to bring, give them this sense of their unity, to promote this sense of unity. It's what he continues to drive home. So he begins what we read this morning by saying, if there is any encouragement in Christ. Which is a bit of a misleading translation. More accurately, I think it should read, since there is encouragement in Christ, since there is consolation from love, since there is compassion and sympathy. In other words, Paul is not wondering aloud if these things exist. For Paul, they are assumed. We have those things from Christ. But there is something missing within this church, within this community. And he exhorts them to make his joy complete. So right away, we should notice that Paul's joy is intimately connected to the life of this community. Paul is being very, very pastoral here. And how do they make his joy complete? By being of the same mind, having the same love And being in full accord of one mind. I find this particularly interesting because everything Paul says there sounds very heady, right? It sounds like it's all kind of up here. Be of the same mind. It may may sound as though Paul is saying that there is disunity in this church because some people have some slightly different beliefs. And we all need to get on the same page and we all need to be in full accord and of one mind, thinking and believing the same things. Yet, he follows that that, that suggestion up by saying, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility regard others as better than yourselves. What's particularly interesting about that phrase is that in the ancient world humility doesn't seem to have been regarded as a virtue. Today, by and large, we consider it to be a virtue, Yet, few of us actually strive for it. We're better at the humble brag than we are at actually being humble. But it's fascinating, I think, that Paul's exhortation to be of the same mind seems to have almost nothing to do with what the people are supposed to think or believe theologically. In other words, Paul is not concerning himself with doctrine here. He's concerned with how they live and how they love the closest he gets to doctrine is to telling them to think more highly of others than than themselves and to put the needs of others before their own needs. He goes on to say, let the same mind be in you that was in Christ Jesus, who Paul points out, lived a life of ultimate humility, did nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, and looked not to his own interests, but the interests of others. And then Paul goes into what has come to be known as the Christ hymn. That's what we refer to um, that last part of, of chapter 2. Scholars are divided over whether Paul wrote this or someone else. Um, but it seems very clearly to be this thing that was used very early on in Christian worship. This hymn that would be recited or sung by the people. So in other words, this is one of the earliest statements about Christ used in worship. It's a very powerful Powerful statement. So what does it mean to have the same mind that was in Christ Jesus? Which seems to me like a pretty impossible standard. What what kind of mind was in Christ? According to Paul, Christ is the one who emptied himself. Even though he was in the form of God, in some way he absolved himself of this equality with God. Took the form of a slave humbled himself to the point of death, even the most humiliating, wretched form of death. In in Greco-Roman society, there was no worse way, or more humiliating way, to die. It was a form of execution reserved for revolutionaries, the worst of the worst, those who Rome considered to be a threat, and wanted to publicly show the people, this is what happens when you question the empire. This is what happens when you speak ill of Caesar. And, the, and then the Jewish world, Deuteronomy says, anyone who is hung on a tree is under God's curse. So having your Messiah crucified is a pretty embarrassing thing. It's an incredibly scandalous. Early Christians didn't wear crosses as jewelry like we do. They didn't, it was not a symbol of excitement. It was almost a little bit embarrassing even for some. It took a couple hundred years or so before Christians began to use use the cross as a symbol in worship and something worth uh, holding up. Now, the irony, of course, is that Jesus was victorious, not in spite of his defeat, not in spite of being crucified, but precisely because of his defeat. It was through his defeat that he was ultimately vindicated and shown to be the Christ. Paul says this is what matters. This is what it means to, be of the, to have the same mind that was in Christ, to empty yourself, to put the needs of others before even your own, to not be obsessed with getting your own way. This, this isn't a competition, but even if it was, the one that we're supposed to be emulating is the one who willingly accepted his own defeat. And you can see why Paul would think this, more than anything else, would lead to unity. Imagine a church defined by sacrificial love for one another. Imagine a church that cared less about being victorious and cared more about serving each other. There's this this great old um, blues and bluegrass song that apparently Kenny Chesney recently butchered called, uh, it's true, Uh, Everybody wants to go to heaven, but nobody wants to die. We we want the glory. We want the good stuff, right? We want what happens at the end of it, but we don't want to go through what Christ went through. We We don't want to actually empty ourselves. We don't want to experience that. We don't want the defeat that Christ himself experienced. So perhaps we can answer the question of the Israelites that burning question, is the Lord among us or not? By asking, are we emptying ourselves for one another? In humility, do we regard others as better than ourselves? Are we looking to our own interests or to the interests of others? Are we looking for victory or defeat? I think asking these questions may even help heal some of the wounds within our denomination, within our presbytery. So I think my prayer for us is that we might learn to empty ourselves in service of God and in one another. And perhaps in doing so, we will discover that there is water gushing from the rocks all around us. That what we once thought was a barren wilderness turns out is actually bursting with God's gracious provision and care. So may we learn to live as Christ lived and love as Christ loved, emptying ourselves, not seeking our own selfish ambition, but loving one another the way Christ loved us. Amen.